The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. Now, this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tanya Kiripart. Now, Tanya has worked for some amazing companies, such as Major League Baseball, TED, and most recently, Patreon. But she's also joined these companies at a very interesting inflection point, often moving businesses that were very manual into a digital space, but also helping them start to scale up their capabilities. And when I ask her, what are the ways that help her achieve such great success or find these companies, she often says it's about opening herself up to opportunity by deliberately putting herself out there to create growth opportunities to develop her skills, her capabilities, but by creating guardrails and systems that allow her to learn quickly, safely, and how she can recover in highly visible environments when things don't go to plan. The through line of all of my turning points have been that I have a habit of raising my hand to volunteer to do things I don't really know how to do. So it started off at Major League Baseball, actually. I was a front-end engineer at the time. This is like first.com boom a long time ago. And somebody had left the company. And so people were like, hey, who's willing to learn Flash? That was the hot technology at the time. What a great technology that's been. Right. So, (laughs) So I raised my hand. I was like, why not? So I did. And from that point on, I taught myself Flash, but also that I built the first couple of iterations of MLB Game Game Day, which is the real-time broadcasting, stat broadcast for baseball's live games. And then fast forward five years later, I was running an advanced engineering team, building all live game experiences, launched MLB TV. So it was quite a journey. Then, of course, when I joined TED, I raised my hand again. They were looking for an interaction designer. By that point, I had picked up design, and I said that that's 10% of what I can offer you, but what I can really, really offer you is to build your product and product design discipline for TED as an organization. So I raised my hand and said that, and the executive director at the time hired me for that, and so spent seven years there. Most recently, last month, I raised my hand again at Patreon saying that, hey, I could help take Patreon international. Have I done it before? Well, I've launched, taken like companies' products internationally before, but I've not opened an international office before. So there's a lot of elements of like taking a brand international that I have not done before. And so, of course, I raised my hands. So most people would find that pretty scary, right? When they have never done something before, would they try something they've never done before? That sounds pretty scary to a lot of people. What helps you do that? I think maybe it's personality, perhaps. My close friends would often say that line between bravery and stupidity, that's, yeah. that's where I sit. <laughs> good line. <laughs> yeah. Line and, and so far, I err on the bravery when it comes to being on that line professionally. Personally, in like sports and hobbies and things like that, I tend to err on the stupidity side. <laughs> 
So yeah, so I play in both fields. Yeah, it's a scary thing, but it's also, I think that some people gravitate towards structure and other people gravitate towards unstructured paths. And I think I'm one of the latter. So what's given you confidence to try new things? Just stick up your hand, give it a go. You know, the beauty of working in the technology space is there's the delete button. There's a backspace. And, you know, if you made mistakes, so long as you learn very quickly and you understand how to iterate and you put guardrails in place to understand the impact of your decisions and be flexible and adaptive and move accordingly, I think that learning through doing is basically what allowed me to be brave. It's really interesting to hear you say that, right? That there's an intentionality around what you're doing and there's sort of like you say, guardrails, there's a system in place to help you make some of these bets or to try these things out because you're thinking about what success is, how do you make them small, safe, learn what works and doesn't, uh, recover when situations have unintended consequences quickly by learning fast. So what taught you that? I will tell you what it feels like to be a 23-year-old and build MLB game day, when the first second of the opening day, 4 million people comes on in that first second, and then your stuff breaks. That's what taught me. It's a very expensive lesson, but baseball opening day happens at the same. You just know that in advance. It happens every single year. And yeah, maybe you've failed catastrophically for a few minutes, but the sport does go on still. And so there is some amount of forgiveness in those scary moments, but it's those scary moments that actually taught me to be extremely prepared for anything live related. And what about the people around you then, your teams, the stakeholders that you were sponsoring you? How did they help that? Well, it varies. I'll tell you that much. It varies. I think some people are extremely nervous. And some people are okay with it so long as we can recover quickly. But I think one thing that was pertinent in that environment at that time was that as soon as something broke, everybody came together to try to fix it as opposed to like wasting precious minutes trying to figure out who made the mistake. It was more like, well, how can we actually get this going in the very next minute? Yeah, it's definitely a trend I see a lot, especially in software systems now. Like we're building things that are so complicated, it's hard to anticipate every single scenario that's going to happen. And yet in many organizations, people are so afraid to try things because if they try something and it doesn't work, they're afraid of the blame. But I think in these high performance cultures, what always rings true is like people get very focused on the problem very quickly and work to solve the problem. Even when they reflect on what went wrong, Very rarely do they pin it on one individual. It's more pinned on a process that went wrong or a system that was wrong or an assumption about how something would work that didn't work. And they tend to focus more on the system rather than the individual. Yeah. And with that focus, it allows for everybody to do a better job, understand their guardrails a little bit better the next time around. So 4 million people showing up to your product. And having a shock that it's not 4 million people haven't watched it in one time, I'm sure was an unlearning moment. What other fun experiences have you had that helped you learn or maybe sometimes not so fun? On a personal level? Yeah. 
Okay. So, you know, I had quite a bit of a big unlearning moment actually when I transitioned professionally out of Major League Baseball and started at TED. So preface first, I joined Major League Baseball quite early and it was only 100 people at the company and it grew to about 800 people. And that the time in which it grew, let's just say I had my own bathroom because the whole entire floor, there was like 10 women and of the 10 women, there was only a few of us who were in engineering. And so in some ways, I was kind of like situated right at the crosshair of like professional sports and like advanced technology. Let's just say it's all dudes all the time. But, you know, I grew up with dad and my older brother and I went to a technical school, got a technical degree. And so it felt very kind of natural to me to be in that environment. And I'll be honest with you, like, gosh, the first 10 years of my career, I didn't even see any kind of problem or opportunity or issues with regard to diversity and inclusion, even though it was like right in front of me. And when I joined TED, which was a total 180 because at TED, it's a nonprofit, it's 85% female. It's not at the time, not like a technology focused company. It's a content production company. It is an events company. And I had to unlearn a lot. I had to speak differently to my colleagues. I have to be a lot more patient with working with a large group of women which is not the same thing as working with larger groups of guys. I have to share bathroom. <laughs> I had to learn how to do that. And a whole host of things. And I think that my time at TED really opened my eyes towards what it's like to work in an environment that has people of a variety of different background, culture, gender, all kinds of stuff. And it changed me a lot. And looking back, I didn't even know that I was oftentimes in a situation where it was not appropriate because there wasn't any example around. So I felt like I learned a lot and I unlearned myself in the process. So this resonates with me a lot. In the last company I worked for, it's called ThoughtWorks. And we had this really strong social economic justice. It was one of the key pillars of the company. And what's really interesting about that is it sort of gravitated people that were very, like they cared about tech, but they really cared about social impact as well. Uh, it also had the highest proportion of female engineers in any company. Like they constantly win awards each year for that. And, you know, I was there for nearly six years and I spent so much of that time surrounded by these teams that were naturally diverse you know, they didn't have 50-50 ratios of male or female, but there was cultural diversity and there was some gender parity. And, you know, for a lot of time, I was wondering, where is this gender problem? Because everywhere I look on these teams, you know, it's not perfect, but I seem to see people. And then recently, I moved to San Francisco in the last four years. Aha, uh -huh. you see where the problem is. <laughs> Like talk about being naive to how you were conditioned in one world to another. And now all I see are bros walking around with their backpacks. Hoodie and company t-shirts. So that was such a shock for me as well to realize not only my sphere was a bubble, but how much of a bubble that was has sort of been a real wake up moment for me. 
and a real call to actually be much more active in championing those beliefs and values that were sort of baked into me when I worked at ThoughtWorks. And now in this new world, it seems like a lifetime away from where that was. Yeah. And it has to be a concerted effort for sure to be able to build a team and an environment, a working environment that if you're building products for the mass, right, to consumers, you want the team that actually build it to be somewhat reflective of the diversity of your consumers. Right. And all research, I'll add tons of the research in the show notes to show that the highest performing teams are always the most diverse teams. And yet we still build these mono teams and expect <laughs> them to have the same results of diverse teams. Yeah. So I think there's a lesson for us all there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's a great moment for you and me to both unlearn some of our almost opposite ends of the spectrum yeah, to absolutely. that problem. From, from different sides. What about for yourself and some of the companies that you've worked in and how you've helped them go through this process of unlearning? Because it's very interesting, you know, when we look at these companies like TED, like what was TED before it is what it is today? And then again, in this new space where you're trying something that's not maybe been tried before, but some of its intent is grounded way back to the Renaissance with Patreon of supporting artists as they create content and connecting them with people that want to see them successful. What have been some of the insights you've learned in both of those two examples? Sure. I'll start with Ted. I don't really know how it is that I tend to land myself in a place at a scale up stages of all of these companies, but I joined Ted when it was about. Well, people would love to know that because they'd love to be part of these scaling stories. What, oh. <laughs> what, what are, do you look for? I don't actually look for company size in so much as looking for a mission that's worth spending time on. Yeah. And for me personally, both TED and Patreon resonate with me from a mission standpoint. And that's what drives me to do what I do every day. Um, yeah, I think people really undervalue that or under-recognize how important it is. Like for me, again, the thing that brought me to ThoughtWorks were its values and its principles of great technology, social and economic justice. Like that's why I went there. And so many great people went there for that. And it turned into what it turned into. It's great to hear that you're very intentional about looking for values and mission to find an alignment there. Because if there is there, great people go to these places and they create great products. Yeah, but shared kind of people walk in through those doors with the same intention, right? People who also believe in the mission tend to congregate. And so that's kind of how you create an environment and a culture that's like very mission driven. Yeah. So for Ted... In my experience, the big unlearning moment for TED was I joined as employee number 38. And by the time I left, we were close to 200. And at the time, you know, as I mentioned, I think they, the company had about four freelance engineer and one freelance designer. And I walked in with an intention to build the product and product design discipline. And I was given the opportunity to do that. And I'm very grateful for that. And so the big unlearning moment was that a lot of folks at TED at the time were community manager, events manager, people with lots of deep, deep background in like content and curation. So it was by and large half content company and half events company. And what was really important 
to really kind of think about was that could TED become a media brand, like really become the media brand that it could be beyond just pushing content and publishing it onto all kinds of different platforms. And in order to do that, you have to invest in technology. You have to embrace the fact that you have to be partly a technology company. And to do that well, to make that a part of your core identity as a company, you have to make an investment. And you, as in everyone in the company, has to begin to embrace that both from the perspective of, no, you can't just go out and buy software and then just have it magically work. Yes, you're going to have to wait a little while for the team to build something that's bespoke because this is a bespoke process for this particular company. But the value is clear. Well, as you can see how big TED has become in the last, gosh, 10 years, seven years. But also the elements of technology that you don't necessarily see unless you attend the conference is that the conference, every bit of it is as equally as important because the conference is our bread and butter. The technology that drives the conference is also bespoke. And it's also really, really important part of what makes the experience of attending TED really great. And what's fascinating to me about this is so many organizations today have scaled their business through people. You think of big organizations like General Electric, or it was all about being number one in your market, build moats, get people to scale your business. And now we're seeing so much more technology being used to scale businesses or scale the message and the impact. So you're asking these sort of manual companies to become technology companies, which is a huge shift in behavior. And it's interesting to hear Ted had to go through their own version of that to become the company they are today. What were some of the challenges that you saw with people who were used to the, let's say, personal experience of hosting these fantastic in-person events and then trying to translate that energy and intent to a digital platform? So you don't lose any of the brand, but you start to get the reach. I have to say one thing, though, is that I don't necessarily think that content companies should always move towards becoming a technology company. I think that is a choice that different companies can make if it suits them. And whether or not it suits them is is a whole lot of conversations, I would imagine, between all the folks that are involved. And it happened to be that way for TED because we saw some of the opportunity and the unique things that we were doing in the marketplace. We were long-form content long before any long-form content was out there. We were technically a lecture with just like one person standing on a red dot just talking for a very long time. And for us, like tag-based search or directed search was like not really going to yield anything meaningful because what makes a TED Talk great is the storyline, it's the arc, it's the narrative. It's not always because you're interested in a biology talk, but you just love the humor in that speaker's story and you learn something that applies to your life. And so discovery and lots of things that was leading us to really think about like, what is the digital presence of TED and how that experience could be even better kind of led us to really think heavily about investing in our own technology. And what are some of the things then that helped you be successful with that? How did you bring people along on that journey? From within the organization? Yeah. You have to first create value that they can see and feel immediately. And it was very hard to go to the company and say that, 
oh, hey, by the way, you can't actually ask us to fix anything while we replatform the entire website and all of the tooling for a year. And by the way, it's going to cost a lot of money. So that was a hard conversation. But at the end of the day, you know, you kind of remind everybody that says that, hey, remember how like you want one thing done and it takes four months and it broke like five things? We don't have to live in that world. If we were just to invest like in building the right software platform that scale all of our productivity exponentially and allow us to be able to focus on the things that we want to do rather than wait for a bug report. So there's a lot of convincing, but a lot of like building in small chunks and creating value and building out champions within an organization, not from within your own team, but the teams that will actually benefit, bring them on board in the product development process and have them be the champion of that particular product so that they become the voice that then emanate across the entire organization. So that's how you create large scale changes. You need a lot of champions. One of the things we talk a lot about on the podcast is think big, start small, learn fast. And I think also one of the powers of starting small and doing these small bits of work is it does create evidence of change. It creates evidence of the future you're trying to build. And I think constantly showing people small things more frequently helps build trust and confidence that we're on the path that we can deliver these things and they can see their vision come to life bit by bit. And I think especially when you're taking people on this journey to a new place that they've never been before, having these small bits of success, showing the vision coming to life and these small bits, again, gives people confidence that you can do it. It gives them a reality of what it might look like. And then you can course correct as, as you learn these things and take those small steps to succeed. Yeah, it's quite great because you feel a sense of progress. You're not just sort of like waiting on the other end of the tunnel and not knowing when you're going to get there. I should also add that one big thing about what I did at TED that it was surprisingly effective to me was how much the grand vision that has like beautiful visual narrative, like unite everybody's like hope for this future. And so it was equally as important to anchor this big change with this beautiful narrative that says, hey, in this new world, TED.com will actually work on the phone. Imagine that, you know, back in the day it wasn't. And when it works on the phone, we can reach all these new people. Imagine that. And here, here's the prototype. Here, you play with the prototype. Just sort of like, like sort of dream with me kind of thing. And then you build the little bits of progress to kind of feed back into the loop. And it had been great. And that's super interesting as well, right? I think the power of aligning around an aspiration, but like a clear outcome that you're aiming for, that people get a shared understanding of and excited about. And then these smaller little outcomes along the way to help show that progress. It's such a powerful mechanism. I think that many people don't use as much as they maybe should when they're tackling these like big product replatforming challenges where you're not going to figure it all out on the first day and it's going to take time and people will have to be patient. How long did the whole replatforming process take at TED? A little, about a year and a half. 
which is like, it's basically in technology land. It is stupid to work on a project that like takes a year and a half because like you should be working on projects that like releases every two weeks, right? But at certain times, I struggle with this in the process of it as well. We want the thing that we work on to be a reveal. We don't want to kind of like, when you rebrand something or redesign something that like requires like regutting of everything from the ground up, you don't want like half of the site to like be the old way and then half of the site to be the new way. You want at least 80% of the site to be a cohesive experience. And you want to make sure you don't pull that rug from underneath all of the users. So you have to actually build in a change management process so that you set the right expectation to the users, to people who come to TED.com, to people who come to the app, that change is coming and you're a part of that. And hey, by the way, you're invited to a beta program. Give us feedback so that there's excitement around it as opposed to like, who just rearranged my living room? Like I've used to be able to find my stuff this way and now I can't find it and now I'm angry. Because virality of anger, as we know, (laughs) is hard to tame. Yeah, yeah. Especially Um, in this world. Yeah. So if you can like get ahead of the game and turn it into an excitement and wait a little bit, yeah, you might have to gate your product release. You might have to have a gigantic beta in the waiting, but the reveal is worth it. And again, it's such a smart strategy, right? You're making it safe again for people who really want to go to this new world or customers. They join a beta program. There's an expectation that's probably not going to be perfect but they're part of helping you build this new platform, which is is such an engaging experience for those customers. Instead of being on Twitter, giving out, they're excited. They're like, hey, I'm helping build this future of TED together with these developers. It's going to be awesome. Exactly. And the magic of scarcity, right? You have a limited invitation and then you allow those people you invite to invite their friends. And suddenly they feel like they're helping to change, but they're also like thought leaders in their own community. And the entire time, basically their biggest fans is the ones that we give out these invitations to, to help be a part of our rebuild. And they become the voice. They become the champion of the change. And that's kind of what made it great. And it's such a great contrast with your 4 million people arriving on day one story of Major League Baseball. (laughs) Very, very true. Very, very true. It was a lot harder to work on Major League Baseball. And I'll tell you why. It's because like it's live data, live video, and the stitching of data and video in real time from across the ballparks. And there's no way to test that ahead of time because the first game is the first game. So... Yeah, a lot more stressful in terms of that element. But yeah, it's also planning. It's like planning to fail quickly versus planning to be successful slowly. (laughs) It's great. Now as you're sort of moving forward into Patreon and some of the work you're trying to help almost, uh, well, content creators maybe, as well as the people who support them on learn about how that interaction can happen. Because most people just know, well, how do I support people I want to support as they create great content that I love to read and use and be inspired by? It's fascinating. I think the story of Patreon is, you know, it's both old and new, as you mentioned, right? The patronage model dates back to like the Greeks and the Romans. Like it's been a part of our human history for so long that 
in some ways, it should feel very natural to us to say, hey, people are creating art. It's really great. I love it. I'm going to support them. You would think that like that should be like the main thing today after all of the stuff we've been doing. Like we send people to the moon and now we send robots to Mars. And then you would think that there would be a proliferation of like the arts and the support of the arts. But what we end up seeing today is that the economy of content has kind of like transformed in a way that you have like an equally lively and equally creative group of content creator, we call it the creative supply, putting amazing stuff out there. And then we continue to have even more demand, right? People are consuming content. So in some ways, the balance of supply and demand is more lively than ever. But the support system is not direct because the intermediary part that sits in between the people who create content and people who consume content is profiting quite heavily from the separation. And so the unlearning part for us consumers is more like, how do we go back to where we started? Let me just tell you kind of like more of like an analogy story. We all grew up with like TVs and radios, right? We don't necessarily like think about who paid for what gets created that we see on TV or radio. But we see advertisement. In some ways, we assume that, okay, some big studio creates those content and then they make some money from distribution and licensing and then it gets distributed. And then by the time, you know, it comes onto our screen, it's okay that we see advertising here and there, but someone somewhere is already funding the creation of this content and it's not really our problem. So we're just couch potatoes just sitting there watching. So now we're carrying that habit over to online. But the problem is that now the content creation has been democratized. Anybody can create content and anybody can put it on the platform. There's technology that can actually put your YouTube video of your cat like walking around the house and like millions of people can see it worldwide. So distribution become sort of facilitated by technology. But the funding model didn't evolve with it. And so more and more, you know, you still have on one hand people wanting to create content, but now they don't have the big studios. And on the other hand, you have a lot more people watching your content. So there's demand. So that's why advertising kind of becomes larger than ever, because they're the voluntary intermediary into the business and be like, oh, you don't want to pay for content? You want money to create content? Let me make it happen for the both of you. And so now you have like two people in a trade exchange, welcoming a third party that clearly says, I want to manipulate the both of you. And now we have like a whole economy of that. And it's fascinating. And I think that the unlearning part and what Patreon is trying to really create is a movement of change. It is a question of like, could the creator be supported directly by the people who actually appreciate their work? Could there be a direct relationship, not like you push out content and it just goes into the nether and you have no idea who downloaded your podcast and that's the end of that? Yeah, like, you know, what I love about this example, there's so many parts to it, right? First of all, the interesting part of how we had this model of patronage and somehow we unlearned that. Right. It's just interesting <laughs> to me 
because it manifests itself in history so many times. Like the, the interesting thing even about the Romans is the way that they were able to grow and scale and sustain their the Roman Empire is as soon as they conquered other countries, they incorporated their best practices from the countries and let go of their behaviors that weren't as good as theirs. Mm. So they had this system of government that would continuously both learn and unlearn and as it incorporated new entities into it. That was just fascinating to me. That's what inspired me to even think about writing this book. And so many of these patterns like patronage being unlearned as these new business models came into play in our world. And yet so many of these business models, again, are just lifting behaviors we know from one type of environment. Your example of the TV and TVs have ads. So now let's have a technology world. Oh, yeah, I'm watching de facto TV on YouTube. I must have ads, right? It's trying to port these same behaviors, but the technology is totally different. It can be leveraged in all sorts of different ways. And podcasting, you know, my personal favorite gripe, like how hard it is to close feedback loops with listeners because you literally are just broadcasting. The tools haven't adapted to like radio. Radio was just broadcast. But now we have these amazing platforms where you should be able to connect with the people who are listening to your content, tell you what's working, not working, encouraging you to make more of some and less of the other. And yet we still have these technology platforms that are just modeling a legacy way on a legacy technology of doing things. So these sort of stories are always super interesting to me is helping people recognize that the problems might stay the same, but technology shifts radically about how you solve those problems and the type of ways you can connect people together, be it content creators and content consumers. And those people want to, you know, support one another, like fans inspire content creators to create even more difference and diverse content, but they can do that when fans support them to invest that time in thinking up these ideas. So why do we need people in the middle? Great question. (laughs) I think the reason why we need people in the middle is that changing consumer behavior at massive scale is very hard. And it is not like tomorrow you and I are going to pay for every web page that we ever visit, even if we have the intention to support the people who put out content that we care about. It's a very, very hard thing to change at massive scale. And we're not incented to change because the advertisers will gladly allow for all of this to remain free. And so we kind of become, I guess, complacent out of convenience, perhaps. I think at some point, you know, I debate this and, you know, sometimes I lose sleep at night because of this, because the thing that we don't necessarily think about is the price of our data and the price of our time and the price of our attention. And if advertising is really putting out like, for me, it's like the next yoga pants company. And I'm like, oh, okay, I need more yoga pants. Great. That's actually okay. But once you use advertising technology to manipulate people's ideology, and it's splitting hair at this point, you know, there's nobody's policing who gets to put out like ads about yoga pants versus ads about some sort of fake news. It's the same technology. And that's when it becomes dangerous. 
Yeah, and I think so many of these systems that we're building, they're so big, they're so complex, there's so many moving parts. The consequences of what we ship, I think, are becoming even more and more important. And recognizing when you have desired results versus unintended consequences, how you can roll back from that. You know, I think there's a conversation that is starting to happen, but really needs to happen, especially in the engineering community, about how safe are our systems that we build? Are we aware of the consequences of our actions? Or do we have feedback mechanisms in place to tell us if we're going in the direction that we want or not? Well, it's kind of funny you say this because it almost feels like it loops right back to the beginning of our conversation around building diverse teams. If you build a diverse team who are responsible for these types of technology, then the level of awareness outside of like your immediate groups of friends, your immediate groups of bubbles or what have you, those perspective gets put on the table and people become more aware. Like I would love nothing more than like the big tech companies who just like send their engineers and designers and product managers out to like Myanmar and see the ramification of like what social media does to a society outside of like the Bay Area. Well, there's a thought. So as we look forward, you know, what are some of the things you're most excited about as we think about technology and some of the impacts it can have? I am an eternal optimist and a futurist. And so I have a lot of faith in technology making the world a better place. I think it requires intention from the people who drive the ship, many, many people who drive the ship. I'm excited about actually... A couple of things. First is I am excited about other countries playing in a larger space when it comes to building software and building products and building technologies that we in America begin can begin to import because I think that that's something that gives perspective. So that's one thing I'm excited about. I am excited about what I'm doing at Patreon, its mission, and I think it's a big mountain to climb. And I think that's precisely why I'm excited about it. You know, the line between bravery and stupid. <laughs> yeah, you're walking it again. <laughs> yeah, I'm walking it again. And like, I'm really, really looking forward to a future where if I think about my children, my children's children who may grow up and want to like be a painter and, you know, we don't have to like sit there and sweat over like how they're going to make a living because now being creative as a career is legitimized. I, I definitely look forward to that future. Well, I just want to say it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, Thank you, know, you. Some of the big standouts for me, of course, is how much this idea of aligning to missions that you're passionate about is such a huge driving force, not only for yourself to be happy doing the things you want to do, but finding other people who care about those things too and working with them to build these great products and services that you've been part of, I think is one thing that really, really resonates with me. And I think people don't really often recognize the power of that and not be afraid to try things, right? Like one of the things that so many people on this podcast who've reached out, they're always worried about how can I try? How do I start to learn how to try? And, you know, sharing that there are systems there, that you're building guardrails to help you think big and start small learn what works for you and not and adapt, I think is a super powerful system. So thank you very much for sharing some of your stories and insights. It's been great having you on the show. 
Of course. Thank you. It's been really fun.